Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and Big Questions is now a year old. Whoa! So much has happened in such a short period. This week seems like the perfect time to look back at some of my favorite takeaways from guests over the last year. Throughout this episode, we'll also reveal the winners of the Why Is Your Best Friend Your Best Friend contest. Thank you all for sending along the reasons that your best friends are so special to you. Reading those emails was really moving. I laughed, I teared up. I was honored throughout to have your trust. It was so hard to choose the winners. Those that I'll mention throughout this episode will be contacted through email so we can send out sportique hoodies or sweatpants to their best friends. A best friend makes you comfortable and sportique hoodies, sweats, and tees are the embodiment of the word comfort. Check out sportique.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E. There's no U after the Q. That's what makes it unique. All you gotta do is try on Sportique sweatpants once and you'll see why Kevin, the manager, sleeps in his. I'm wearing my hoodie as I speak. Also like to give a shout out to myintent.org. The new year is a time for resolutions, which makes it the ideal time to think about a My Intent bracelet. You can chisel the word that will motivate and inspire you throughout the new year into a token that you'll wrap around your wrist. It'll be a great reminder to focus on what's important to you so that you'll accomplish all that you're setting out to do. Go to myintent.org to see how affordable these bracelets are and check out the videos on the site to see how meaningful a bracelet can be. My intent. So I'm about to lay out a banquet of wisdom that has come my way through big questions. Let's start with marketing guru Seth Godin. Earlier in the year, Seth described all the shifts that were taking place around us and how journalism and storytelling were changing. He could have been sketching the direction of my life. But this description is relevant for everyone because no matter who you are or what you do, in this era of data overload, everybody's got to be able to tell his or her story. Here's Seth. It's really important to understand how we got here because it's still affecting us. Here's the analogy. When music was on vinyl... The vinyl and the music were connected. You couldn't have one without the other. As soon as we took the music off the vinyl and could spread it and duplicate it, the entire business model, not just of, for the executives, but for the musicians, changes forever. Because things that were scarce aren't scarce anymore. Right? Does that make sense when we think about music? Yeah. Okay. So when we think about journalism, the equivalent of the vinyl was a piece of paper. So if the New York Times is on a piece of paper, Esquire is on a piece of paper, every issue costs money. That creates a scarce number of issues, a scarce number of competitors. If you're an advertiser and you want to reach a certain group of people, there's only a scarce number of places to run the ad. You run at one of those places and pay a fortune. That fortune leaves a little bit of money left over to pay cap, right? And what these each of these entities discovered is the more honest they keep their journalists, the more subscribers they have, the more subscribers they have, the more they can charge. So everything was in a virtuous cycle. This was true for 500 years. 500 years? Yeah, since Gutenberg. That's been the model, right? And the shift is we got rid of paper. And once you get rid of paper... You're getting rid of the vinyl. Right. Anyone can have a magazine. Anyone can have a TV station. Anyone can have a newspaper. Well, if anyone can have one, the number of places you can run an ad goes through the roof. And if the number of places you can run an ad goes through the roof, the amount you're going to pay per ad goes way down. And if the amount of ad your revenue is coming in goes down, there's less money to pay Cal. So the game changes. And the game changes to they're not making any more attention. Attention is still scarce. How am I going to get the eyeballs 
of the person who used to wait a month for Esquire to show up in their mailbox because that person isn't waiting a month anymore. They've got six hours a day, four hours a day, eight hours a day, eyeball time to look at media. And so the Kardashians show up. And so the infomercial people show up and the YouTube people show up. And there's this this race for eyeballs and the eyeballs aren't asking hard questions like, what's your ulterior motive? The eyeballs are just saying, is there a cute cat? Is there a naked person in it? I'll watch. (laughs) And so at some level, podcasts represent this shift where someone who's willing to spend hours of their life to make a podcast is building something that's scarce again. Because you can't make an hour-long podcast in six minutes of effort, right? You've got to put days of effort into making an hour-long podcast, sometimes weeks. So that's scarce. So advertisers are paying extra for it. But here's what's going to happen. It's already happening. Because it's almost a business to have a podcast, not a good one, but almost, lots of people are going to start them. And if lots of people are going to start them, there's lots to listen to. And if there's lots to listen to, no podcast will get enough listeners, which means that no advertiser will pay enough to support any good podcast anymore, back to the race to the bottom. And so this cycle is corrupting our culture. It's corrupting the time and effort of professional journalists because they can't make a craft at it anymore because they're not getting a CPM of 80, which is what Esquire used to charge. They're getting a CPM of eight cents and they're in a crowded marketplace. And it's really hard to be a publisher and a journalist at the same time and to figure out how to always be in hustle mode. And that's a problem. So we're in this amateur moment. It may not stay that way, but right now, most of the people who make most of the content are amateurs, not professionals, and they have other goals different than what a professional used to have. So what happens going forward? Well, that's always a good question. So let's think about poetry. The number of professional poets is really low. You can't make a living as a poet the way you used to 100 years ago. Because anyone can write poetry, but there's no place to put it. So it's similar to this situation. Except Bob Dylan's a poet, And he's worth $150 million because he's not just a poet. He's a famous poet with songs. So we see the constant morphing of what it even means to be a storyteller, what it even means to be a journalist. Maybe what it means to be a journalist is no longer you wait for your editor to give you an assignment and then you write this. Maybe what it means to be a journalist is 20 times a year, you're on stage telling your stories for a lot of money. And the rest of the time, you're doing the work that enables you to tell those stories. Thanks, Seth. And now let's give away the first hoodie. It goes to this story from Jerry and his friend Fish. I've referenced it before, but I love it. So let's do it again. Goes like this, and this is Jerry talking. When I moved to Phoenix for college, I made the decision to focus on school. Even though I enjoyed beer quite a bit, I held off on drinking. At the end of my first year, a friend of mine asked if I wanted to go to a party her boyfriend was throwing. I reluctantly said yes. Apparently, All the stress and self-control met in a flurry of drinking that ended with me disrobed, swimming naked in his pool and falling asleep naked in his bed. I woke up to fish tossing me a pair of his shorts, a clean t-shirt, and saying, Hey man, let's go get some breakfast. That is why he is my best friend. Well, fish gets the hoodie and Jerry gets a pair of sportique sweats just in case he ever finds himself in a similar position. Next takeaway comes from Kobe Bryant. It's a favorite of mine because it enables us to see Kobe in a different light. Most look at him as the fearless shooter who won five NBA championships with the Los Angeles Lakers, but Kobe now has a storytelling company. This story details how the music and animation came together for his poem, Dear Basketball, which won an Academy Award in 2008 in the category of Best Animated Short. But there are deeper levels to this story, and I think you'll see how the fundamentals of excellence apply 
across all fields. The same curiosity and storytelling skills that Kobe used to develop his basketball game over 20 years are what he's using now to build his company. He's taking the same lessons and applying them forward. And this applies to all of us. We're bigger than our job description. We can do a lot of things. And in this day and age where the world is changing so fast, it's good to know what we're fundamentally best at and to be conscious of how our skills and knowledge can be transferred to new applications. Here's Kobe. What's it like working with John Williams? This guy is like our Beethoven, bigger than Beethoven. He's done music for more than 100 films. Uh, Jaws, mm-hmm. Jurassic Park, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. How is that collaboration process between the two of you? you know, it, was, it, was a, it was seamless. Um, you know, I think that the wonderful thing about their basketball is that all three of us, um, you know, including Glenn, um, all approached our craft exactly the same way, with infinite curiosity and with this childlike wonder of it and uh, and so the process was extremely seamless i mean we sat down and you know i talked to him on the phone about it and he read the letter and loved the letter and um and his question was well i, I really need to see the piece to really he said i want to do this for you but i but i i want to know that you know i don't want you know these orchestral pieces that that i do to be too much for the piece um and that was his concern and when we went to the Glenn studio and we sat down and we watched it, he said, no, this is, you're absolutely right. This requires, it needs uh, an orchestral piece, a composition of that magnitude. It actually would feel different if it didn't have it. And then it was just about the nature of the piece. What does it mean? How does it hit home um, personally? And then once he, once he found that, that nugget, then it was just like the light went off. <laughs> you can see it. Like he knew exactly what he wanted to do right then and there in the room. It's like he knew exactly where he wanted to start. He knew you know, how he wanted to move through the piece. So as we're watching it on the monitor and you see him kind of, his fingers kind of moving through the air, you know, he's hearing something, some language that he can only hear. <laughs> oh man! And, you know, and you see, you kind of, you, you can see these melodies that he's hearing, and um, it's, it's just one. It was magical. It was magical. Is is that equate to basketball in any way? Well, yeah. I mean, it's you know, animation and basketball. You know, like with Glenn, if you sat down with Glenn and you watched him air, you know, animate um, Ariel, for example, you wouldn't know what he was animating after the first six, seven lines, you, you you wouldn't know what the heck he was doing. It was like he was animating something else, right? But then after the 10th line, 11th line, then it's all of a sudden it's like, whoa, there it is, right? Because in his mind, he sees the full picture, but you from the outside cannot see that. And it's the same thing with John. It's the same thing for me when I played. You know, I'm thinking not just of what's happening here in front of you and here and now in the first quarter, but how does that um action that takes place in the first quarter connect to what takes place in the last two minutes of the game. Oh, so the same thing's going on in your head in the game. Yeah. Like you're, you're John Williams then. Absolutely. And the game is like a piece of music. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're responsible for an entire body of music that, 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 that's um, comprised of different instruments, right? And figuring out how to create a beautiful harmony or melody out of it. Um, and, you know, it requires a lot of thinking in the off season of putting that puzzle together to study and to kind of, so that then when you're in season, these things are felt, they're not thought, right? But you, it's a, you, know, you can feel those things. When the music came to you, was it completely perfect? Or do you have a moment where you're saying, you know, John, at about three minutes and 50 <laughs> seconds, we could use a little more French horn. <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about it, when we scored it, um, he was really excited. I mean, he was like, he was like, he was jacked up. He was like energized, you know, and, and 
Um, and Glenn and I both realized when we were talking to each other, um, when he was, uh, you know, kind of getting ready to, to start, that he had never heard the music. Right? If you think about it, I mean, he's, he's, it's an 80 instrument uh, piece. And he's written every instrument out himself by hand. And he can hear the music and what it sounds like in his head. But for the first time, he himself is actually going to hear it for the first time. Whoa. Right? I mean, that's incredible. That's incredible. And so he starts to play, and I'm so excited that I, I almost yell. And I catch myself, and I realize the red light's on, and we're recording, so I got to keep it cool, you know? <laughs> and, 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 uh, and then he finishes the piece, and I'm just completely blown away. And he turns over his left shoulder and looks at me and Glenn sitting on the side. And he looks at us and goes, I promise you it will get better. And I was like, uh, I kind of thought we were done. I, I, mean, I, I don't know what you heard, but, and, you know, and I turned over at Glenn, turned over my shoulder to look at Glenn, and, and Glenn, in five and a half minutes, had sketched the entire room. So he had sketched all 80 instruments, John conducting, and me looking um, at John conduct. He had sketched that. So I'm like, wait, did you hear... Wait, what are you doing? I mean, you got to be kidding me. What the heck is going on in here? Next winner, this one really caught me off guard, came from Jeremy in Detroit. It's about his best friend, Bradford. They met in college, were immediately close, and over time, their friendship kept getting deeper. When Bradford married, it was Jeremy who performed the ceremony. Life separated Jeremy and Bradford geographically for years, but then brought them back together in Detroit, where the two began to share some triumphant times at Andrews on the Corner. It's a sort of old-school bar and grill that has shuttle services to all the big games. Two friends able to see each other all the time once again. And then, abruptly... Bradford was diagnosed with a rare kidney cancer, and less than four months later, he passed. What? One day, I will make a trip to Andrews on the corner and lift a glass to Bradford with Jeremy and Bradford's wife. When you ask a question like, why is your best friend your best friend? Be prepared for the answer to go deeper than you expected. Next takeaway comes from my pal, Larry King. There were many things I had to learn to get this podcast going. Aside from the audio setups and checks, it was the first time in my career that I was doing advertisements. There's a dividing line between editorial and advertising when you write for a magazine like Esquire, a line that was never crossed. But Larry was selling from the day he started in radio. And here, he gives me advice on how it's done. And this applies to everybody because we've all got to tell our story. But you're always selling yourself. But first one, what you're doing now is you're selling yourself. If the audience enjoys what they're hearing, you are selling yourself. To them, And we sell ourselves every day. As Herbie Cohen, my friend who wrote You Can Negotiate Anything, says, you negotiate from the minute you open your eyes in the morning. You're negotiating the day. Did you perceive yourself as a salesman when you were- No, I know Arthur Godfrey, who was one of the best commercial readers ever on radio, on his driver's license, it said occupation, he wrote salesman. Uh, that's what wow. he thought he was. He said, he taught me that. You're always selling yourself. I'll tell you how good Godfrey was. I'm 11 years old, 12 years old. I'm homesick with bad cold. Brooklyn. I'm listening to Arthur Godfrey in the morning, who, by the way, accounted for 33% of CBS's income to television and radio. May, it's, it's a shame that he's kind of forgotten. Great, great radio performer. And he's doing a commercial for Jiffy Peanut Butter. And he says, you know, I do this commercial every morning and I tell you about Jiffy Peanut Butter. So I'm going to do something different today. 
I got a jar here. I'm going to take a scoop and eat it. And he's put it in his mouth. Now, when you got peanut butter in your mouth, you go, this is so good. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so good. I got dressed, went down to the store, and bought Jiffy peanut butter and brought it home. That was selling. Next winner is Zachary. He immediately sold me on his best friend, Cole, when he told me he gave Cole the chicken pox. It's got to be a beautiful thing to be best friends with somebody from early childhood and see each other go through all the pivotal moments in life. Imagine, what would it feel like when you both hit 90 or 100? Hope both you guys get there. Hoodies coming your way, Cole. This next takeaway is one of my favorites. It's the story that flipped the switch in a Cuban immigrant, Nellie Galan, and would drive her to become the first Latina president of an American television network, Telemundo. Here, she passes this inspiration on to so many others. Well, first of all, I have to say that the most important part of that story is that I was, before that, I was like a little reporter which is very glamorous for a young person. Who doesn't want to be on TV? And I was at CBS as like a junior little reporter in Boston. And I meet these two big Hollywood moguls because I got asked to go interview them for a John F. Kennedy special. And they're like, what, are you Jewish? What are you? I had a New Jersey Jewish accent. And I go, I'm Latina. They go, oh, we bought this little rinky-dinky station in New Jersey, the first TV station that's Latino. We, We think you should come and work for us. And I'm like, well, why would I want to come and work for you when I'm a little, I'm going to be a big TV reporter at CBS. And they're like, ah, are you kidding me? Are you rich? I go, no, we're rich. So you want to go be a little reporter that works in a factory at CBS, or do you want to be employee number one of what's going to be a multi-billion dollar business? Do you not know the Latino market's going to be big? And I think that's an important part of the story because- I was still thinking like ego, like I'm going to go be a reporter on TV. And they showed me a bigger vision of a life. So imagine if I was employee one of Google today, what would I be worth? So I was employee one of what is now Telemundo and Univision. That's just just so we get the idea. Yeah, this is an important part of the setup. Right. So I go run what is, I mean, the most rinky dinky. I mean, when I tell you that it was like a 300 square foot little room, in Newark, which at the time was gun-infested city, I needed a bodyguard to get into the building. There were three union engineers and me. I ran this little thing. I, I learned how to make money on it. I, I even got to build a little building in Teterboro, I mean, which was right next to the airplane field where my very wealthy billionaire boss used to fly his plane. So... I was like the rinky, think of it as I was like the rinky dinky little Burger King or McDonald's owner before McDonald's and Burger King was big of a billionaire that had a million other companies and I was employee one. Ran this thing for a number of years to the point where we now had 70 employees and we were, and the business was making $8 million a year profit from nothing and they sold it for $75 million. And I walk into the office and the lawyer from my billionaire boss says, we sold the company for $75 million and we're giving you a car and some money. And I was heartbroken because it was my baby. I barely ever saw them. And I call my boss, which you're never supposed to do. He's like a big deal. You don't just call him. I need to see you right away. (laughs) And I take my car and I go from New Jersey into Manhattan. He obviously knows what's coming. Well, he's, he probably thinks he's probably thinks I'm a little gnat and he's just going to like snap me off. And I go into his Park Avenue apartment, uh, not apartment, uh, office. I go up and I do everything they tell you in business not to do. I'm hysterical crying to the point where his assistant doesn't even stop me because she's like, whatever, she's hysterical. And I walk in and I go, how could you do this to me? This is my baby. You didn't even <laughs> tell me I would have bought it myself. And he's like, young lady. Those are my chips. If you think you're so good, go get your own chips. Whoa. 
And I'm like, what an asshole. And I went home. And, you know, and by the way, this man just passed away a year ago. And you know, and I still say the greatest mentor of my life, the greatest mentor of my life, because I went home. I thought he was an asshole. I cried it out. And then I thought, maybe he's right. A couple days later, when I had time to calm down, I thought, maybe he's right. Maybe I'm thinking too small. He didn't talk down to me like I was a little minority. He could have just said, oh, don't worry. You will, you know, whatever. He didn't, I mean, a lot of people, just to be politically correct, might have said, oh, you know, it's going to be fine. Do you want a job? Do you want me to find you another job? What do you want me to, no, he said, go get your own chips. And then I realized, well, maybe he thinks I can get my own chips. Maybe I can get my own chips. And I, I, I still think that was the greatest moment of my life because my parents in their less, less than-ness being immigrants couldn't show me a bigger vision for my life. And he not only showed me a bigger vision for my life, he became the role model for a bigger vision of my life. Every single time from that moment on till today, every time I ever got stuck, every time that the immigrant me could not go raise money, would want to give up, he would come into my mind. And that's why I know that people live forever. Next winner is Nathan from Ghent, Belgium, and his best friend, Davino. Nathan was smitten by a beautiful woman at a pub. Problem was, she was surrounded by several men she was friendly with who were keeping the other guys in the pub at a distance. Nathan tried to talk to her and get her number, but struggled. Davino came to the rescue, got her contact info, and typed it into Nathan's cell phone. And because of that, Nathan is now married to that beautiful woman. Well done, Davino. You're going to look great in your sportique hoodie. Next takeaway comes from my pal Joe DeSena, founder of Spartan, those obstacle races that I've been running for the last year. I am so grateful to Joe. Since I started those obstacle races, I've lost 25 pounds. Haven't been in this good a shape in decades. I've been climbing walls, getting up ropes, running through mud, crawling under barbed wire. And Spartan races have not only attracted me, but 5 million others. Joe's mission is to get the world in shape. He's trying to reach 100 million people. And if you become one of them, you'll be better off for it. Listen to Joe talk about the start. First race was um, in, in Vermont, and it was um, very uh, almost medieval in some ways because we were still trying to figure it out. The funniest thing about the first race, you don't know this, Dr. B, she is, um, I, I planted somebody in the woods, and I said, you want to, people need to be able to like um, uh, deal with adversity. And so here they were running and I wanted this person because gladiator to jump out of the woods and tackle them. (laughs) 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 So, and so that was the first, that was the first gladiator. It was awesome. And before I know it, the whole festival area was empty. And I thought, wow, I guess this race wasn't interesting. People aren't staying around. No, they had all migrated to the woods to watch this guy tackling the runners going through the woods but the, was this it, a football player or something? Or this was, was he bigger dra- than a football? This was a giant guy with a <laughs> with a big um, jousting thing, and he would just tackle people and catch them off guard. And was, was he dressed like a knight? He from- he had a leather little thing on, like as if he was from Sparta. Barely anything on, no shirt, no. <laughs> and so runners and he, are just thinking, yeah, you're they're- running along. You're like, I just made it through those five obstacles. I'm this you're is- breathing breathing heavy, and then. Wow. <laughs> Knocked right on your ass. And and uh, because I wanted it to be like, you know, like the old world, like, you know, we used to have tough times. Stop complaining about the coffee being cold or not parking too far from your uh, the grocery store. But the point was the insurance company didn't really like that. 
It's a good thing there was no gladiator coming after me on mile 14 when I ran the beast in Spartanburg, South Carolina last year. But hey, I got to pause here to tell you about one of the epiphanies that came out of getting in shape. I fell in love with bicycles again. Occasionally, I inserted biking into my training sessions, and when I did, I remembered how much I loved riding my bike as a kid. Why I stopped? I have no idea. I'll bet many of us would have a similar feeling if we got on a bike and just started pedaling. So here's what happened. I got a great holiday gift, a bamboo bike from Sichuan, China, custom made from a company called Source Cycles. It's so elegant, it's got 14 speeds. I cannot tell you how happy I feel when I get on this bike and pedal. You can get a visual at sourcecycles.com. That's S-O-U-R-C-E-C-Y-C-L-E-S.com. Whenever I'm riding, people are looking. You don't often see a bamboo bicycle. And it makes me so happy to spread the joy that I get when I'm on this bicycle. The more I ride, the more I start to think, Cal... Could you ride this bike around the world? Stay tuned. Why am I bringing this up? I know a lot of people like to hear Tim Ferriss recommend the products that he loves on his podcast, so I'm giving five stars to Source Cycles and another company called VeloFix. If you're interested in bicycles or know somebody who's interested in bicycles, you gotta know about VeloFix. When my bamboo bike arrived in L.A. from China, it needed to be assembled. I'm not exactly Mr. Handy, but VeloFix takes care of everything for you. A van drives up to your house, a technician takes your bike, and assembles or fixes it on the spot in the van. VeloFix operates all across the United States and Canada. You can find out exactly where on VeloFix.com that's V-E-L-O-F-I-X dot com. I had a techie named Charlie assemble the bamboo frame, get the chain on, the brakes, and put my source cycle together in roughly an hour. And that baby was singing when it hit the road. I'm telling you, get on a bike and remember how happy you used to be. The next takeaway comes from Jacko Willink, commander of a Navy SEAL team turned author and podcaster. It's about understanding limits, and it helped me navigate all those Spartan obstacle races last year. We're often told to push, push, push to get the most out of ourselves, and Jacko does push. He's up at four every morning working out, but as this story attests, we can only be our best when we understand our limits. As the saying goes, there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. I guess what you're talking about is something called a shallow water blackout, which is when you hold your breath and you don't come up for air, eventually you pass out. And so there's evolutions during basic SEAL training and there's evolutions during when you get to the SEAL teams that where you, where you can pass out from holding your breath too long. I, I had a shallow water blackout, not while I was in SEAL training, but when I was got to the SEAL teams, I had a shallow water blackout. And what does that do to you afterward? Does, what does it teach you? It teaches you that, it teaches you where your limitations are. It teaches you where your limitations are. Because basically it boils down, for, for instance, with a shallow water blackout, if you hold your breath, when you're holding your breath, there's going to be a knock on the door that says, hey, you need to take another breath now. And that knock on the door in your head, you can ignore the first one. The first one doesn't really matter. The second knock on the door in your head that says, like, says hey, you need to take a breath now. You really need air. You can ignore that one too because that one doesn't really matter. That's just your, it's just, these are just your instincts are telling you, hey, you should be breathing right now and you're not. And then the third knock, when the third knock comes, you got to listen to that third knock because that's the one that's telling you, hey, you really need to breathe. And if you don't listen to that one, you'll very quickly, at least in my case, very quickly went from 
you know, being conscious to unconscious within probably a matter of, from having any indication that I was going to be unconscious to being unconscious was probably two seconds. You know, I said to myself, oh, wow, this doesn't seem good. Boom, I'm out. So, so yeah, you learn about your limitations. And, and then I had more respect for that. I thought I could push through one threshold that I, that I couldn't push through. And knowing that you can come through that, what does that do for you? Because you went out, but you came back. Well, I went out and came back because my friends grabbed me and dragged me to the surface and <laughs> revived me. It, it, it makes you, it doesn't, it's not like I said to myself, oh, great, I can pass out now and live. No, I actually thought to myself, if it would have been nighttime, because this was luckily, and this is part of the reason I was pushing myself hard, was we were doing some pre- preparatory training in the pool. We, we were in a pool when this happened. And I was pushing it, the envelope purposely to see how far I could go. And I found out how far I could go. And it doesn't make you feel invincible that you came back. No, it makes you feel vulnerable because, okay, now I know that where my limitations are. Is, is vulnerability helpful? Well, yeah. If you don't know what your vulnerabilities are, you can't watch out for them. You can't protect them. It's interesting because I thought part of this training would get your mind to see you yourself in a place where you would push aside the vulnerabilities in order to get where you wanted to go. But, but it sounds like something very strategic is going on. Oh, yeah. And when you're young and you, you definitely have a, a much higher tendency to feel more invincible than you do when you get older. And, and the reason is because when you're young and you feel invincible, that's because you haven't been tested yet. And the more you get tested, the more you recognize that you're, you're vulnerable. And if you make mistakes or you do the wrong thing, you'll get killed. Next hoodie goes to Romney for waking up every day and saying, I love you to her husband, Eduardo. When Eduardo didn't immediately hear back from me, he assumed that his message was not one of the winners. And he posted his message, a love letter to his wife on Instagram. You're a lucky man, Eduardo. But... You gotta have a little patience. Next takeaway comes from Daniel Pink, author of the New York Times bestseller, When. It's all about finding the best time to do things. Here, Dan talks about the importance of something we might overlook, taking breaks. I think there's an argument for a modern siesta. Again, not... Two hours, everybody should take up two hours in the afternoon to go have a ginormous plate of seafood paella and three glasses of <laughs> tempranillo, which is cool some days, I would that guess. sounded good to me. Um, but, um, but, but some kind of systematic breaks, especially during the afternoon when we know, because we know that certain periods of the afternoon, there's a huge, huge, huge decrease in performance on a number of different levels in corporate performance, education, especially healthcare judicial decision-making, jury decision-making, and that, and that we need to be systematic about our breaks. And what we know about the best breaks is that we should be taking more breaks. We should be taking certain kinds of breaks. And the best breaks are these. Their best breaks are social rather than solo. So there's some interesting evidence showing that breaks with other people are more replenishing than breaks on our own. So that's like the social side of that. Uh, we know that breaks, uh, breaks are better if they're moving rather than stationary, if they're outside rather than inside. Uh, and if they're fully detached rather than semi-detached. So a break where, hey, I'm going to go take a walk around the block and look at my Instagram feed. That's not a break. Um, oh, and you're still tethered. Yes, tethered, right. The, the, what you want, you don't want to be tethered, you want to be detached. And in many ways, the siesta is a, is a form of that. We're not going to, we're not going to go no, back. No, but you know what yeah. hit me when you're talking about this? All of these young people who are tethered to their phone, does this mean that they never get a break? Could be, could be, and that's not healthy. That's not that's not how we're that's not how we're wired. The science is overwhelming that we need to have breaks, and I think even more not only the technology but just sort of the overall business culture, especially here in the United States, we have a culture of powering through, where we feel like the way to get more work done, the way to get better work done, is simply to power through. So if you're feeling a little bit of a dip, if you're feeling a little bit of decline, power through, man up. You know, even though most people in America have no, you know, no genetic 
ancestral connection to the Puritans. <laughs> I think there's a Puritanical American thing, side about this where it's like not only more effective to power through, but it's morally virtuous to power through. And the evidence says no. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. <laughs> human beings, human beings. Don't be- power through. Human beings need breaks. And what we see in a lot of research on high performance, particularly with musicians and athletes, is that the most elite musicians, the best athletes, are intentional about taking breaks. Anders Ericsson, the guy who did lion's share of the research on what's called deliberate practice, but how do people become great? How do people become stars? How do they practice? Found that among elite musicians, the elite musicians took more breaks than the non-elite musicians. The elite musicians were more likely to take naps And there's a whole line of research on naps, too, that naps can be very, very useful to us. So what we need is we need to actually change our way of thinking about it because we've gotten it wrong. You know, sometimes our intuition is right. Sometimes our intuition is wrong. Sometimes you look at our intuition and the science confirms it. This is something where our intuition and our moral and cultural practices are at odds with the science. So we look at somebody and, and I think it's changing, though. I think in some ways the science of breaks is where the science of sleep was 15 years ago. 15 years ago, if somebody pulled an all-nighter, they were a star. They were a badass. They were committed. Now, we know a lot more about the science of sleep. It's reached public consciousness. And so now somebody comes in bragging about pulling an all-nighter or not getting any sleep for three weeks. And we're like, whoa, hey, who, ha. You go home and get some sleep. You're probably hurting your performance. You're probably hurting other people's performance because you're so sleep deprived. So my goal is to have something along the lines of, you know, instead of saying, oh, look at Cal, he's such a badass. He hasn't taken a break, you know, all afternoon. He's worked straight through, heads down from eight at eight in the morning until six at night. What I want to do is say, wow, look at Cal. He's taking a 10 minute walk break. What a badass. The next winner is Elaine from Ann Arbor, who wrote out her answer on a series of napkins next to a drink at 1 a.m. and sent me the photos. It was so intimate and mysterious at the same time because she didn't mention the name of her friend and the message that she wrote out on all those napkins. I'm curious, and I'll need that name and address to get your friend a Sportique hoodie, Elaine. Next takeaway is from Ryan Holiday. Ryan is the best-selling author of The Obstacle is the Way. He plugs exercise into his daily routine because it sparks ideas for his writing. Here, he talks about that process. When I did decide to write it, the proposal came together pretty quickly. The publisher bought it, n- not for a ton of money. They did not think a, uh, a book about an obscure school of an ancient philosophy would do particularly well. But I remember I was struggling with writing it. I was working on it. And I'd written you know, a couple things in a couple different directions. And I was sitting, I'd gone back to where I went to college. I was just hanging out there. And I was sitting in a Starbucks that I'd used to go to to study. And the sort of form of the book started to come together for me there. And then I was back in New York City, maybe a month later, and I was running up along the East River. And the idea for the intro just magically came to me. I don't know where it came from. But the, the, the you know, you, I think what you do is you, you think and you think and you think and you work about it and you work on it. And then oftentimes, when you've stopped thinking about it, and you've gone into something else, it all sort of coalesces magically together. You know, a lot of times I talk to creative people and they describe having ideas in the shower. Yeah. Where you're completely relaxed. Maybe there's hot water coming down on you. And this this seems to be somewhat the case. So when I'm not traveling, almost every day I run or swim sometime in the late afternoon, like three to maybe five, starting at one of those times. And I would say I've probably written or had more important breakthroughs on my work from either that run or that swim than I have. Like when I sit down to write in the morning, that's more workmanlike, but the inspiration or like, oh, that's how I solve that problem. That often comes from during that exercise time, which is why I sort of schedule it in the day. And I don't I don't consider exercise like this thing that I do to be healthy. I, I mean, I consider it that, but I also consider it like a, an important work thing. When you get done with the exercise, do you 
immediately go to write your ideas down or is it just in your head and, okay, I got this? So sometimes I'll have so many ideas that I'll lose a lot of them, like in re-entry, so to speak. But it's not uncommon for me to come, like sort of burst into my house and yell to my wife, like, nobody talk to me, nobody say anything until I can get this down in some way, whether it's emailing it to myself or writing it down on a piece of paper or a note card or just going straight to the document and, and putting it there. It's like, yeah, you have these ideas while you're in orbit, and then you've got to find some way to not lose them as you're re-entering the atmosphere. It's a terrifying thought to lose a thought. Yes, although I find that they're not lost. It just goes back into the swirl, and then you find it again. Because now the pieces fit, but now they've become unconnected, and then they'll just come back connected. So I've, I've like had a thought on a run, lost it, been upset, and then magically it came back to me as well, but at a different later time. Next hoodie goes to Steve for his friendship with Jim, an only child and an adopted child. Made me think about what it would be like to be an only child and adopted and then find a best friend. Man, the gratitude probably becomes exponential. Next takeaway comes from Diana Nyad, who swam roughly 110 miles from Cuba to Florida on her fifth attempt at the age of 64. Took her about 53 hours. Here, Diana talks about improving with age. And Big Questions gives me insight into just how she feels. Only now, after decades as a writer, do I hear my most authentic voice on this podcast. I like to joke, Cal, that back in my 20s when I first tried the Cuba swim and I was doing all the other swims on this blue jewel of a planet of ours, um, I was more of a thoroughbred horse. I was lean. I was fairly fast in the ocean, not like an Olympic swimmer, but fast for an ocean swimmer. I could cover miles in a very quick pace. And I was often vulnerable to flus and colds. I would I'd be more tired. It took me longer to recuperate. When I came back in my 60s to again try this, and everybody would ask me, what would make you think if you couldn't do it when you were 28 at the prime of your career, holding all these world records, why would you think at the advanced age of 60 that you'd have something going for you? And actually, I think I was a better athlete inside and out than I was back in my 20s. Now I'm more of um, what I like to call a Clydesdale. I have a, <laughs> I have a little more girth to me. I have a little more power. So I don't swim as fast mile per mile, not that much slower, but not as fast, but I'm tough. I feel like, you know, I could, I could, I could get out of the water after a 16 hour training swim and walk through a brick wall. I'm not beaten down. I never get colds. I never never get flus. I just have a stronger constitution. But bigger than that, your phrase, inside of you, were you a better, were you better prepared? Was there something inside of you that made you capable of doing this at 64? Better than when you were 28? Yes. I was all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, it grew, it evolved. But I was in awe of this life we get to live. As we all get older, we get, we get more like that, don't we? We get more appreciative, more grateful for every day. And my mother had just died. And I thought, wow, I miss my mom. But also she was 82. Could, could it be as strong and vital as I feel? Could it be genetically that in, in 20 years, that's all I got? That's all I got left on this planet? So you're all of a sudden filled with this, even as an atheist, uh, Oprah called me an atheist in awe. So I even <laughs> filled with this awe at the universe, at the planet, reading Stephen Hawking in Cuba the night before the swim about the formation of the universe out there under the four billion stars that you can literally see in the Gulf Stream in the middle of summer up at night. I wasn't in awe of any of that at 28. I was all about me my success, my, you know, my, my, uh, my thing, my mojo. Now I became about others. I was much kinder to my team. I was much more in need of my team. When Bonnie didn't want to do it the fifth time, I thought, not only do I 
think maybe I can't make it without her. I thought, I don't want to. I want to share this. We did all this together. We did all the research. We gathered the, the esteemed team together. And I said to my team, two hours from the, from the finish, the palm trees were now visible. You I mean, your eyes are just dead tired. You're not focusing on much. But I saw the waving palm trees off in the distance. And I, 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 I didn't see the people gathered on the beach, but I knew there was a scene. I was told by Bonnie. And I asked my team to gather around me. John Bartlett, our navigator, brought the whole team around. And I cried. And I said to them, look, I guess... I'm going to walk up on that beach pretty soon. I guess somebody's going to take my photo. But don't you ever forget, we did this. We did this together. We made history together. I could have never given that authentic speech at the age of 28. So yeah, I involved a lot internally as an athlete. And I also think even physically, I was better as an athlete at 64. Now you asked me at 94, you know, uh, if, if, I if, if I'm right there, you, you ask me, but right now I can say in, in, I'm 68 now, almost 69. I could say I'm, I'm as capable of anything I've ever done in my life at this age. Next hoodie goes to Pierre. You're going to have to trust me on this one. Thanks for your note, Paul. Next takeaway comes from Alex Benayan, author of The Third Door. As many of you know, I helped mentor Alex through the process of writing his book. We worked on it for five years. It started out when he was a college freshman searching for the meaning of success. Alex wanted to know what Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, and Warren Buffett were doing when they were his age. So we went on an adventure to meet them. And he did. The Third Door ended up being a book about possibilities, became a national bestseller, and here Alex talks about the responsibility we all have to be a role model for others. I read this story somewhere about this teacher who's teaching for Teach for America. And, you know, she was assigned to a really rough neighborhood in a really tough school, I think, you know, somewhere in Baltimore to, I think, maybe third or fourth grade. And she realized, you know, these kids really need some inspiration. So one day she, you know, passes us, she's a paper and crayons. And she says, today, instead of our math lesson, we're all going to draw pictures of our biggest dream in life. You know, what you want to be when you grow up, your biggest dream. And, you know, all the kids start coloring. Except there's this one boy sitting in the back who won't pick up a crayon. And, you know, the teacher He's looking at him, and 30 minutes goes by, and his face is just stoic. And finally, his eyes light up, and he reaches for a crayon, and he starts coloring. And, you know, the, all the kids pass in their papers. They go home. The teacher's going through them. And she sees that that young boy drew a picture of a pizza delivery man. And the teacher was very concerned, so she called the mother that night. The mother, though, said that she wasn't surprised. The mother said that the only male figure in his life who isn't in jail or on drugs is his uncle who delivers pizza. And what that story taught me is that young people will always reach for the highest branch they believe is possible. They will always reach for the highest branch they believe is possible. So it's our job, whether it's schools or families or people in the media at large, to illuminate more branches. And that's really my mission moving forward. So if I had to make that my intent bracelet, it would be very simple. It would be illuminate branches. Next winner is Brian with his crazy description of a friendship with Dan that started in college with a company they created salvaging old things and selling them on eBay. Within two years, the company went platinum and they were selling more than 900,000 different items. They now operate Austin's Couch Potatoes Furniture and Mattress Stores and Factory in Austin, Texas, and they're starting a scholarship fund for more than 43 million orphans on the streets of India. They want to show the world that anybody can be salvageable and can have a huge purpose in life. I'm told Dan is frequently a little chilly 
and could use a sporty goodie. It's coming your way, Dan. Next takeaway comes from Frank Blake, former CEO of Home Depot and current chairman of the board at Delta Airlines. When I told him that it's rare that I get an answer I'm looking for on my first question, that it usually comes on the fourth or fifth follow-up, he gave me a method of drilling for the right answer immediately that works for him in business. The crowd at the 212 conference loved it. Should there be a CQO, a chief questioning officer in an organization? Yes, and that person should be the leader. So my, uh, my answer to that is, if anything's really important, the leader in the organization needs to do it, not hand it over to someone else. And we were talking at dinner. There's a great phrase, uh, you're probably all familiar with it in business, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. One of the ways you express how you care is how you ask questions, whether you ask questions, whether your questions are sincere and genuine or they're just superficial, I'm asking you the question because you're here and I'm bored. So it's, it's, that's what the leader does. The leader asks engaged questions that shows that he cares about people. Can you tell when you just starting as, as a CEO that people don't want to give you honest answers because they want to protect themselves? So there's a great, the founder of Home Depot is, Home Depot has a number of, three founders, but one of the founders is a guy named Bernie Marcus. He's, he's great. One of the great retail geniuses of all times. His first comment to me was, here's what's going to happen. You're going to sit down at a table, all your teams around you, and you're going to tell a joke. They're all going to laugh. You're not funny. <laughs> now, <laughs> close that circle. And what that means is everybody is going to feed back to you what they think you want to hear. And this was a really early lesson that's so true. So, you know, in retail, you walk stores a lot and you ask people, how are things going in the store? If you ask, if I go into a Home Depot store and I ask the store manager, how's everything going? There is only one answer to that question, and you know why. The only answer to that question is, everything's great, you're awesome, please go. That is <laughs> not an engaging question. That is not a question that shows you really care. That's just a throwaway question. And people sense a throwaway question. People sense whether there's, you're actually trying to extract something from their brain. But yes. But, but here, here's the thing. When, when I ask a question, I often don't expect to get the answer that I'm looking for until the fourth or fifth follow-up question. Does the CEO have time to get to the fourth or fifth follow-up question? So here was my, and everybody, I recommend that you all develop your own question hack. I'll give you mine. So here is mine, and it worked really well. Uh, my because why is powerful. My question would always be, whatever the hell we were working on, whatever project thing, whatever it was, I would ask, why is blank not going well? Why isn't it going well? Every once in a while, someone would say, why do you say that? It's going awesome. Rare. Most often they'd go, oh my God. He knows it's not going well. I guess we better tell him why it's not going well. You actually have, because you've asked why, that is actually trying to penetrate, you actually skip all of those questions where they tell you how brilliant you are, and you get to actually what's not going well. And it works very well. Next hoodie goes to Manish. And it's from his friend, Corey, because Manish tells Corey when he's got spinach stuck between his teeth. Our next takeaway is from Mick Ebeling, the founder of Not Impossible Labs. Mick's phenomenal team has invented a device to remove the shakes from people who have Parkinson's disease. It's on the verge of being rolled out. So if you know anybody with Parkinson's disease, email me at calfussman.com and I'll get your information to Mick. Those of you who've already emailed know that Mick and his team will be getting to you this year 
as soon as the rollout allows. Here's a perfect example. We led this whole podcast. This is, this is a perfect way to like tie it all together. We started this podcast telling the story of how we were able to have the deaf create a way for the deaf to experience music. That's right. Guess what one of the accidental, the accidental outcomes of that was? One of the accidental outcomes is that we had this- And here Mick is going chief, to his computer. We had this, a guy that we call our, uh, our chief mad scientist, right? Uh, and he said, hey, you know, Mick, you know, we, we did that thing that allows everybody to experience music. Um, this is him right here. He's like, I have this theory. I read this thing. <laughs> oh, man. This, this guy looks like he's in a 1960s beauty parlor getting a beehive put on his head. But it's aluminum. With aluminum foil. Aluminum foil. Exactly. What's going on here? So he's actually working with different ways to, um, to control a computer with your brain waves right now. Right? So he's, he's actually talking to his computer yeah, yeah. through the aluminum he's register, foil. He's registering different, different ways. The aluminum foil is acting as a conductor for him. But so he said to me, send me those wristbands because this friend of mine has um, his father or her father has Parkinson's. Oh no. Or I should say, oh yes. Oh yes. And he's <laughs> like, he said, send him out to me because I want to put your wristband on. You can see in this video, like how, how difficult it is for this person to keep his arms to straight. Keep their arms straight, right? And so then we sent it out oh, to him. Oh man, look we at that. We put it on. And look at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got right? Yep, this is perfect. Tap each finger. He has complete control of his hand again. His, it stopped his Parkinson's tremor completely. It stopped his Parkinson's tremors completely. Oh man, if Muhammad Ali so could see created, that. So we created, we created a way to help the deaf experience music. And the deaf community loves it. And along the way, we accidentally created a way to solve Parkinson's tremors. So you asked me, do I want to see the future? Nah, I'm good. I'm good with this path that we're on right now because that accidental outcome in two short months, we're going to launch a solution that's a Parkinson's solution where the general public can go online and order these vibrating wristbands that we've created. And you can order them for your loved one or for anybody who has Parkinson's. And our, the website's going to say, rather than, you know, when you go to, you see pharmaceutical ads and it says, may cause hair loss, may cause, cause your ears to fall off, may cause your eyes to bleed, may cause all this. And these are all the side effects. Ours is going to say, because we can't tell, we can't say that it cures Parkinson's tremors. We're going to say, it may cause your Parkinson's tremors to go away. It may cause you to, if you're elderly, to have improved balance. It may have these things. <laughs> and here's the beautiful thing. You can go on and order these things. And if they don't work, send them back to us. This isn't the, for us. This is just about helping people. And we just want to hear if it works. We want to hear the stories about it works because then it'll help other people. So that is how that's a perfect example of how technology is going to change the world. Sporty hoodie today goes to Chris for saving his friend Craig on Mount Elbert in Colorado. There were so many other beautiful answers to the best friend question. Makes me feel bad that I can't send every best friend a hoodie. I can only hope that anybody who sent in a message realizes they're already a winner because they have those very special friends. I want to close with how this podcast got started. This is Tim Ferriss and I, when the tape got rolling on episode one. We just went off the springboard, brother. We just went off the springboard. So I've been thinking about this conversation for a long time. And I basically had two ways to prepare, I thought. I, one, I know you. Uh, We've been in the sauna together. <laughs> we have. Met your mom. That's right. Met your dad. 
We've gone out to eat. You won't let me pick up the check. <laughs> Listen to your podcasts. Read your books. So I do, in some ways, know you. And I thought, well, I could do even more research. Or I could try to just wipe my memory clean and approach this in a way that, well, I really don't know, Tim. And I'm going to try and forget a little about what I know and just act like I bumped into Tim Ferriss on the train. Holy shit! It's Tim Ferriss. How you doing? You're pretty good at trains. <laughs> from, my, at train. from my memory. Uh, there you go. I'm good at trains. <laughs> Thank you, Tim, for changing my life by inviting me to come on your podcast and insisting that I start my own. I'm now giving keynotes around the world because of you. I'm now consulting with companies about the power of storytelling because of where you pointed me. Your touch is exponential because I'm going to do my best to bring my best to as many people as possible going forward. also want to thank Kevin, the manager, for all his assistance along the way and Golly Furstenberg for all the help day-to-day projects. Winners of the contest will be hearing from Golly about those hoodies. Want to thank Luz Fleming for all his audio work. Hassan Rumier for getting the podcast up every week and Philip Lanos for his everlasting support. And much gratitude to Sportique and my intent for coming along on the journey with me as we move into 2019. The best is yet to come. Cheers.